Hello and welcome to Try Talking Sport, hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer or endurance enthusiast, or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and a little bit of entertainment. Well, how are you doing? I hope you're keeping safe and well and tipping along with your training and keeping your motivation in check. I have to admit, I had a couple of days there last week where the motivation to do anything was really on the floor. A few more of my events got cancelled. I couldn't face going on the laptop to get some of my to-do list done. And as for getting on my bike, well, it got a good rest over the past two weeks. But as I mentioned in the previous episode, I've signed up to the Galway Bay Swim Challenge of completing 13 kilometres of open water swimming over the course of the month of August. And I'm doing it in my swimming togs with no wetsuit. I went from zero to hero in the first week, going from a few dips and splashes here and there to completing seven kilometres in the first week in total, including my longest ever open water swim without a wetsuit of just over two kilometres on Sunday. Yippee! I have to say, though, the thought of doing the swim to Fudra, as it's called, was way more daunting than actually doing it. We swam just over 1k out from the shore with a super encouraging group who made sure we all enjoyed the experience and were safe with our support kayak. I had swam a couple of one kilometre distances during the week and as you do over breakfast on a Friday morning, someone said we should do a big swim on Sunday. I really didn't have too much time to talk myself out of it if the truth be told. Although nervous on Saturday when I thought about the potential of maybe not being able to complete the distance, getting too cold in the water and the possibility of there being jellyfish, I have to say I was a little more than apprehensive. However, It was an excited nervous that set in on Sunday morning as we all got ready for the big dip. Swept away on a tide of excitement and encouragement by the gathered crowd, it was a great swim on a gloriously flat, calm morning in Galway Bay. And I really enjoyed it. So much so, Fiona of hashtag Pink Ladies and I have decided to increase our swim challenge distance to 26 kilometres for the month, so doubling the challenge. You may wonder why I'm telling you all of this. Well, firstly, I'm still buzzing from that swim and I can't wait to get out to Fudra again in the coming weeks and see just how I get on again. Second of all, my motivation that was on the floor has suddenly soared, not just for training, but for getting some other bits and pieces done that really I have been avoiding doing. And finally to say, whilst many of the races that you have been planning to take part in for months have been cancelled or postponed, it's okay to take some time out to adjust to a new plan and find other ways to get those endorphin highs and find that finish line feeling and if your motivation has been lacking to also pick that up off the floor. If you don't have a new race plan just yet or not sure what you're going to do for the season 2020, why not pick a different goal and simply use your active lifestyle to embrace the adventure of life. Swim, cycle, run, climb, kayak, whatever it is. When you look back at this summer, what will you remember? Will it be the cancelled race you were so disappointed with or will it be the adventure and challenge you embraced and the self-satisfaction and pride of what you achieved and made the most of this unprecedented situation and these peculiar times that we now live in? Speaking of setting a challenge and rising to it, that is exactly what Ronan McLaughlin did twice in almost as many weeks. Ronan, a former professional rider from Muff in Donegal, has spent more of his 33 years in the saddle than he has on his two feet. The former unpost chain reaction rider tackled the Everesting challenge with gusto early in July, setting the fifth fastest time worldwide for the challenge and setting a new Irish record for the 8,848 metres of climbing required to achieve the title in the process. A feat that shot him back into the spotlight in the world of cycling. Not one to rest on his laurels. There were murmurs after that first record that maybe there was more in the tank, that he could go faster 
and possibly set a new world record. He quietly went about his business in the intervening weeks, reviewing his performance, his bike, the route, and made some changes to seek out those marginal gains that would see him set a new Everesting world record on July 30th in a time of 7 hours, 4 minutes and 41 seconds. Almost 23 minutes faster than Alberto Contador's time of 7.27.20, which was set just three weeks earlier. In this episode, we chat about that world record and about his life on two wheels, from the early days of cycling after school to his time as a professional rider. He has raced with some of the best riders in the world on the professional circuit, represented club, county and country on his bike for numerous years. Returning home after his professional career, he has taken the domestic scene by storm with many podiums and race wins to his name including a double Shea Elliott win in 2018 and 2019. His plans for a three in a row were scuppered by COVID-19. He has also won the Donegal Ultra 555k twice and has set his sights on winning this year's race and breaking the course record in the process. Ronan is embedded in the world of cycling, not just by riding his bike, but across his now day job with the charity Sustrans, his own coaching business Panache, his work with Pactimo, as well as his advocacy roles as chairperson of Foil CC and member of the board of Cycling Ireland. This is a great chat with an athlete who leaves no stone unturned in his race preparation and training, at all times seeking out the best performance from himself and his equipment with meticulous planning and number crunching. Passionate, dedicated and committed are just some of the words we can use to describe the man from Donegal who now sits at the top of the world. Enjoy the show. Ronan McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining me on Try Talking Sport, fresh from knocking Alberto Contador off his world champion title for the Everesting Challenge. Uh, well done and congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on the show again. Uh, I'm not sure if I would say I'm, I'm fresh from having uh, broken the record, but I'm, I'm certainly, uh, yeah, I suppose I'm recovering now at this stage, but it, it definitely still hasn't sunk in. Tell us a little bit about this Everesting record. We will chat a little bit about your background in sport because you do have a prolific uh, sporting CV in cycling, both here and abroad. But I really want to talk about uh, the Everesting challenge for the moment, for the first couple of minutes of the show, to give people an insight into what it actually entails and how you went about doing it. The first thing it it entails is probably being a bit mad in the head, especially if you're going to do it twice in in less than three weeks. But the, the actual challenge is to... Uh, pick a claim, any any claim that you, that you want. It can be uh, for any reason, but basically work out how many meters of altitude gain you're you're gaining per ascent of that claim, uh, and then you work out how many times you would need to do that exact claim to reach the height of Everest, which is eight thousand eight hundred and forty eight meters. Then you set about going up and down that same stretch of road until you've completed the required amount of laps. Uh, at that stage, you're said to have completed an Everesting challenge. Two weeks prior to setting the new world record, you actually went out onto Memore Gap and broke the Irish record and then also finished fifth in the world. We chatted quite a bit about this on the Facebook Live show a few weeks ago, but tell us a little bit about how the preparation went or what you did to get those minutes to tumble the world record. I'd done it before and, you know, it's one of those challenges when you're going into it, it's so long and it's so tough that you can't really, um, you certainly can't simulate it in training and, you and you know, you're, it's sort of a best estimate as to what you're going to actually do on the on the day. So although, you know, in, in advance of the first ride, everything that I had calculated beforehand suggested it would be a really good time, I didn't really believe it deep down just because... I didn't even know if it was possible to cycle up Memore Gap 64 times, which is what I had to do the first time. 
Um, and then it, you know, it went so well that um, although I was quite content with how how it went, within a few days, the, you know, the thoughts started creeping into my head already about I definitely had left a few things on the table and and felt that I definitely could have pushed a bit harder. And um, when I had done eight hours and nine minutes, then you know, the kind of thinking is I wonder could it go below eight hours and. That was sort of when I started setting about trying to see how how fast I, I I actually could go and spend the next two and a half weeks sort of keeping the training up and at the same time sort of trying to plan everything to the nth degree and chop everything off my bike that I possibly could and uh, I actually chopped a part off the the segment of my more gap that I was using so instead of doing the whole way from top to bottom I sort of cut out the steeper section of my more gap and and used that so. It, it was a shorter segment that I was doing. Uh, it was 14% average gradient instead of 11%, so it was steeper. But I did have to do more laps of it. So on the second attempt, I had to do 80 laps of my more gap, climbing that 14% average gradient. So although I had to do more laps, I actually managed to save 35 kilometers off the total distance of the of the challenge, which you know is, is a huge amount when you consider half of that is, is up my more gap. So you're cutting 17 and a half kilometers of climbing out and I ended up going just over an hour quicker than I did the first time. And Memore Gap, of course, is an iconic, scenic route in Donegal, um, but it's also somewhere that's quite close to your heart, isn't it? As a youngster growing up, it was somewhere that you thought you wanted to be able to cycle once, never mind trying cycle it for a world record yeah exactly and you know that it had that sort of uh nice nice aspect to it as well it, you know it actually meant something for me as well it wasn't just a claim that i was picking because it was purely you know almost perfect for everything it actually as you said it was a claim that when i first started cycling i used to cycle over to it and just try to get up at once was was the challenge without having to get off and walk so i suppose all these years later it, it was a nice way to come full circle, I suppose, to, to go back and do it uh, 64 times without walking the first day and then 80 times without walking on the uh, on the second Everesting attempt. So that was definitely a nice, a very nice aspect of being able to use a climb so close to home, which which just also happened to work out to be almost ideal for, for Everesting. What did you do differently with regards to your bike, because I, I saw that you had chopped part of your handlebars off with a, was it a hacksaw just before you started the challenge. <laughs> so in, in the space of the two weeks from when you did the very first challenge to when you did the second one, what was different? I suppose one of the key things is that, you know, the second time I'd done it, I'd already done it the first time. Um, and that, that might sound obvious, but the, as I said earlier, the, going into it the first day, I, I had no idea was it even possible to cycle up in the war gap 64 times. You know, the, the gradient at the top is, my Garmin was reading 24% or something like that, so that, that really does take its toll. And, um, you know, having, having got through it the first day, uh, I was able to go into the second attempt with much more confidence. Uh, I was also able to go into the second attempt with much more experience and, and knowing how to pace myself. And then, you know, with with the understanding of what was required as well, everything where I erred on the side of caution for the first attempt and, you know, didn't cut my handlebars and didn't change too much about the bike, I was able to call upon the experience of the first ride and say, well, I only need three gears for my more gap because it is so steep. So, you know, I was able to take off the rest of the gears. I knew I hadn't used the drops for the first attempt, so I put on a different set of handlebars and cut off half of them because I wouldn't be using that. I actually happened to get a lend of a of a, a carbon set of wheels, whereas the first time I was using aluminium wheels. The guy, Aaron Ellis, sent me the wheels the first day and then 
another friend, uh, Philip Dagnan, let me the wheels on the second attempt. So all those uh, changes in isolation, they don't make much difference on their own. But when you combine them all together and then combine them with the fact that I had managed to find a way to shave 35 kilometers off what was required, it really adds up. And well, as we've seen, it added up to an hour and five minutes quicker. So it did. So what what is the official world record time now, Ronan? Uh, seven hours, four minutes and 41 seconds. And that was 23 minutes off Contador's uh, record, wasn't it? Yeah, 22.40 or something something around that mark. Yeah, you know, 23 minutes, give or take uh, a little bit either side. And you know, going into it the second time around, I mean, you obviously had the world record probably as a, as a goal going into it. But did you think that you could smash it with you know, as much of a gap as he did with 23 minutes, because that's quite significant. I've been asked this a few times, and although I've answered it as honestly as I can every time, I think I've answered it differently every time, but I was sitting fifth in the world with the time that I had. Um, So if you reckon you're going to go faster and you're already sitting fifth in the world, I suppose you're always running the risk of breaking a world record. Um, But, uh, you know, in, in advance of the second ride, I had done quite a bit of calculations and quite a few modeling models of of the event, and they were all telling me that I was going to break the world record, and actually by you know quite a bit as it turned out that I did. But when you consider that it's Alberto Contador and everything that he has done, that you know it currently holds a record at, at that time, it, it's sort of. Um, it's very hard to believe, even though my my calculations for the first Everson were turned out to be, you know, pretty pretty accurate within two percent, and I actually went two percent quicker than the model said I went, uh, or said I would go. And this time, you know, the same method for calculating my my time was telling me that I was going to beat the record by I think I think the model had said I was going to do seven hours and nine minutes, but still no, you know, when El Alberto Contador has the record. I think it was just I think it was just something in my mind where I couldn't believe it. Although although I knew that was possible, what I set out to do was just go as fast as I could. And that was quite an easy objective to set because I had the first ride done, I had the fifth best time in the world, I had the Irish record and I had nothing to lose. So um it just sort of meant that I could I could go at it and you know, if it didn't work out then so be it. Nobody Nobody was expecting, not even, as I just said, not even myself was expecting me to break Contador's record. So there was absolutely nothing to lose. Worst, worst case scenario, I would still be fifth best in the world and no bad thing to no bad thing to have. So Absolutely. And I've had a good training day for the Donegal Ultra, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> but when you look back at you, at the laps that you were doing, was a 62 and a half a sense of Memoir Gap. Like, was your pace very steady the whole way? Or did you, you know, at like 55 or 50, did you say, right, I'm absolutely just going to nail this completely until I collapse over the line and I'm done? Or did you just decide to keep it steady the whole way? Uh, a bit of both. And, you know, it was, it was 62 and a half laps for the first Everest. It's, it gets quite confusing when you've, when you've done 140-odd laps of more gap. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I get a bit confused myself. And, and actually, my memory of it is just doing three or four laps. So I must have been able to zone out for quite a few of them. But yes and no, you know, the, the idea is to try and ramp it up a bit towards the end. But what actually ended up happening on both occasions was in terms of perceived exertion, I was ramping up. I was going harder. If you ask me how I felt, it felt like I was going as hard as I could. But all I was doing was, 
kind of sustaining the times that I had been doing when I was fresher. Um, so it was the timings for each lap were very, very consistent throughout both attempts, even more consistent on the second attempt than they were in the first. And, you know, although I, I was putting more and more effort in the longer it went on in terms of what I could feel, the timings were just pretty much staying the same. You know, even even towards the end when I was going as hard as I could, you know, you're seven, you know, you're seven hours into going up and down a more gap X amount of times. Um, you're kind of you're kind of running on empty at that stage and and going full gas. All you're really achieving is you know that your that your time isn't getting slower, uh, rather than going full gas and getting your time faster. And in terms of your fueling, then Ronan, how did you manage that? Because obviously, making it a shorter ascent meant that your descent down to turn around and come back up was much shorter as well. But you also took the bottle cages off your bike to make it lighter. So how did you manage the fueling and recovery between each ascent? Uh, yeah, good good question. And uh, it's, it's something that's got a lot of attention to it is. But basically what uh, we did was, it was actually Sean McFadden for a large part on the on the second attempt there. And you'll know Sean from the, the, the Donegal Ultra. Sean was right at the top of the climb. And as I was doing the turn, he was handing me a bottle and I would take a quick drink out of it and throw it back to him and you know if, if I needed a bar he handed me a bar the same thing if I needed a gel he handed me a gel so Sean was there for the full seven hours and four minutes of the Everson plus the extra couple of uh, laps just to be sure that I had enough done so we were standing on the more gap for a good uh, seven and a half eight hours that day and uh, no matter what I needed it was there ready for me every time I got up like so that the the pacing or sorry the fueling there was very little for me to think about other than grabbing a bottle and taking a drink you know the the whole team pretty much had everything ready to go for me you know just the same as uh Alan Harkins had for me the, the first time I done the Everston all, all I had to do was was consume what they were handing to me I didn't have to think about it and you know that not having to have that stress that mental effort to you know, think about am I eating enough am I drinking enough um makes a huge difference they were they were you know uh you couldn't there's no no way to calculate how much time that saved me having having the two the two guys there but it, it must have been huge yeah sean no stranger to uh, to long distance himself the uh the organizer of the donegal um ultra but ronan this has really uh, put you into the spotlight if you do a google now of ronan mac uh, and uh, memoir gap or world record and there's like a million hits nearly um coming up on it but you're no stranger to the spotlight because you have been a professional rider prior to coming back uh, to ireland a couple of years ago so i'd love to go back and hear how did you get involved in cycling in the very first place and what brought you to Belgium to race uh, as a professional athlete? Uh, well, the sort of million dollar question is what got me involved in, uh, in, in cycling and nobody in the family is, is really too sure. Um, I, I happened to work for my father during uh, school holidays during the summer, you know, when I was younger and at the end of one of those summers he asked me, you know, you're going back to work, you're going back to school now in September you didn't get paid or you didn't get pocket money for all the work you done but you know what what do you want now for all the work you have done over the summer and for whatever reason nobody really knows to this day i said i wanted a road racing bike I ended up getting a, a road bike and uh, i suppose i haven't looked back since since then i just uh, got on the bike and you know i, st- I still haven't got off it i'm still pedaling away each and every day like so um that that was sort of how i got involved and then i sort of cycled my own a bit and started off when I came home from school I used to just 
there's another quite a steep hill just right above where we used to live and Grinders Gap it's called and used to go out and that was the first sort of challenge I set myself straight home from school straight onto the bike and see if I can get up to the top of Grinders Gap without having to get off and walk and take about half an hour to get from you know you know down where we lived right up to the top of this hill and then you get almost free wheel all the way back down again and once I'd sort of conquered that, then it sort of turned to on Saturdays, as we were saying earlier, riding over to Memorial Gap and see if I can get up that. And eventually got the way up Memorial Gap without having to walk. And I think about a year or so after that, I heard about a charity cycle from Musnehead to Malinhead that sort of perked my interest and signed up for that and raised money for uh, the Foyle Hospice here locally. And the, the, the Musnehead to Malinhead cycle fell in with uh, some of the local cyclists who I hadn't known prior to that but you know who were all part of a group that weren't really a cycling club so I, I joined them and off we went and they, they all set up for the cycling club and uh, I joined the club and uh, they sort of took me under me under their wings or whatever and yeah one thing led to another and a couple of years later I started racing bikes and ended up I think I just went to a race one day and happened to overhear someone saying they were going to Belgium for the summer and my dad picked me up from the race and says, can I go to Belgium for the summer? Seriously? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, now, there, there was a house in, in Belgium at the time that was specifically for Irish cyclists. So, you know, it's not like I just landed off the plane in Brussels and camped out in the woods or whatever. <laughs> like there, there was a house there for us. But, um, yeah, I started, you know, going over to Belgium around about that time. And that was 2005. And, yeah, it just snowballed from there. I've been back. Well, I was back 2005, 2006, 2007, and then 2008, I joined the the Ampost Sean Kelly team and spent six years in Belgium. It's incredible to think, um, you know, the number of, of young riders that have gone at the elite cycling circuit, really, isn't it? From from such a small country, we've had some incredible cyclists, yourself included. I think in every sport, you know, Ireland tends to punch well above its weight. And, uh, you know, that's uh, probably down to the, the type of athletes that we uh that we can produce here in the in the country, and we all tend to be fairly determined and uh, fairly resilient, and and everything is needed to you know above and beyond the talents required for for riders to make it internationally. And you know, I, I got a I got a taste of that sort of uh, international level sport. Um, but there's you know quite a other few quite a few other riders who were in the Ampost Challenge Kelly team as well, and they've gone on to huge international success the most famous of those at, at this stage is probably sam bennett who you know pretty much everybody knows at this stage is is one of the best sprinters in the world like so you know we and the and the ampost team we had a great uh, as irish riders we had a great opportunity you know it, it was a team with an irish sponsor for the development of irish riders it had a, a nice mixture of of uh, international riders in there too to sort of bring some experience and bring. Uh, it, it wasn't to take the pressure off us as as Irish riders, but it, you know it effectively did because there were some pretty big names in the team, and the team was always run very well, and uh, everybody got equal opportunity to sort of you know get, get their own chances and races and. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a shame that the team's gone now, but in, in the in the time that it exists, it, it it created some fantastic cyclists. Did you ever get starstruck meeting any of the the cyclists that you would have grown up maybe seeing, and then be in the mix with them? Um, yes and no. It kind of you know, I suppose when you uh, first get exposed, you're lining up on the start line, or you're sort of getting warmed up or getting ready for the race beforehand, and you see some of the biggest names in the sport. 
you know, doing the exact same thing, getting warmed up, getting signed on for the, the same races you're about to ride. Um, there probably was times that that could be a bit daunting, but for me, I was always very lucky that, you know, as soon as, as soon as the as soon as the flag dropped or the race started, I didn't tend to notice who I was riding against. It was more just, you know, either I had a, a job to do in the race for the team or, you know, I was trying to get in the breakaway or I was just trying to survive and do the best I could and uh, it didn't really matter who was who I was racing against. It was you know, that was just someone from another rival team that I never thought too too much about who they were. Um, in terms of what they had achieved in, in the sport or if they were a big name or, you know, a, a not so big name. But that's not something that I I can claim as a, a talent or something that I really tried hard not to do. I think it's just something that naturally happened for me that as soon as the flag dropped, you know, it was a race and they were just another person with two arms and two legs that, you know, they, uh, everybody had the same, the same right to be there. So it, it never played too much. I think, I think the only time I really got, I don't know if starstruck's the right word, but, um, let's, let's use it on way that I think the only time I got starstruck was, uh, I happened to get talking to Tom Boone in a race one day and he was, uh, asking me about the Cliffs of Moher and how, how beautiful they were. He had just been there at holidays and, I, I, as as the as the only Irishman in the conversation, had to turn around and say that I'd never been to Cliftonover, which was quite quite embarrassing. But I'm not sure if that was if I was starstruck or if I was embarrassed. But either way, it was a funny conversation. And you told him to come and check out the hills of Donegal instead. Well, it's something to that effect, yeah. And Ronan, you know, looking back over your career and those races around the world, you know, what what would have been the highlight for you of all of that? Without doubt, representing Ireland at the the Elite World Championships in 2012, um, you know, there's there's not many people that get that opportunity, and for me, that was it. It wouldn't matter what I what else I went on to do, you know, just to represent the country and the absolute highest level of international cycling in terms of national teams. But yeah, no questions asked. That that has to be. The, the the height for me in a way personally. And then if you look at say some you know some low lights or some injuries or crashes that you've had, would there be many of those like low lights of, of that career or was it for the most part was it you were living your dream, living your passion, pedaling your bike and, and just enjoying life? Uh yeah, there was a few, you know, negative times and a few uh definitely a few low lights and you know it's uh that that is part of the the sport of cycling, and quite often it's you know when you get to that international level, everybody is talented, and the vast majority of people are are dedicated. So you know there's nobody, even even the best riders in the world, they're not winning every single race that they do. Even if you're Mark Cavendish in his heyday and he's winning twenty races a year, he's probably still riding another seventy or eighty. That you could argue that he is losing because he's not he's not winning them race but you know just by the nature of cycling Cavendish was a sprinter he won sprint races but if the next day is an uphill finish you know he's probably not going to win that so you sort of become in some ways immune to that that uh, feeling of having lost a race because it's not actually possible to it's not like football where you can, you know, a, a, a team like Liverpool this year, I, I don't follow football, but I'll, I'll try to use some sort of analogy there. You know, they can go so many games unbeaten. It's, it's few and far between that riders can go too far unbeaten in a of cycling just because of the different aspects of every race. So from that point of view, 
you, you sort of become a, a, immune to, to that. But there there was definitely times that, you know, you're struggling with injury or you're struggling with form and you're getting a couple of DNFs in a row or you maybe combine both injury, lack of form, DNFs, and then you're in a foreign country in March and it's, you know, snowing for every race that you do. And those are difficult times, but at the same time, much like all the training and much like trying to watch what you what you eat and that's it never seemed like a sacrifice to me because you know I, I was just very focused on trying to be the best that I could and I was lucky in that I could see every time I was struggling the more obvious thing to me was the opportunity that I had rather than the difficulties that I, that I had so um, I suppose that's something that a lot of people struggle with and as I said I, I was just very lucky in that I was able to focus on on the job at hand if I wasn't in good form try to figure out what was going to you know bring me back into good condition if I wasn't having a good run in the races try to figure out you know what what was I doing wrong what could be improved you know sort of refocus for the next race uh, and as I said all along we were in an Irish team with an Irish sponsor living in a house in Belgium that had you know most most of the occupants of were Irish as well so it was really a home from home for for Irish riders and when you compare that to you know quite a few of the other of the other Irish riders at the time who had to when they when they were starting out they had to go to France or they had to go to Italy or they had to go to Belgium or wherever and you know live basically on their own with a foreign family that didn't really know they maybe didn't speak the language and to me it just seemed like a great opportunity that we had so there there definitely was times that you it would get you get you down or whatever but you know it's uh just trying to reset the mind on the fact that there's a great opportunity at hand to make the best of yourself that that you can so since you've come home then you've kind of taken the domestic scene by storm as well um you know you were hoping for the triple with the Shea Elliott this year having won it in 2018 and 2019 but unfortunately the current uh, global situation put a, a stop to that and you've done the Donegal Ultra you're now a world record holder was it easy to come home Ronan or was it a difficult decision I, su- I suppose it was uh, it was it was one of those difficult decisions that you sort of deep down know is the right thing to do so at the time that the way the way I always approached my you know racing full time was that so long as I was progressing towards world tour level or you know getting getting to the top of the sport, I could justify it. But I always said that the year that I stopped progressing towards that would have to be the year that I stopped. And as we said earlier, the highlight of my career was twenty twelve going to the world championships. Pretty much the whole of twenty twelve I was. I was going very, very well. I was in good condition for the whole year. I had some great performances. Um, but in 2013, just, you know, probably because I just wanted it too much. Uh, I trained a huge amount, you know, in the winter from 2012 into 2013. Uh, looking back, I, I definitely trained too much. I, I w- went away from what had worked for me previously and spent the whole winter in Spain and just tried to do too much and ended up overcooking it and, 2013 ended up you know it didn't I didn't even plateau in 2013 it just went backwards completely so from that point of view although at the time that I sort of walked away from the Ampost team although there was later the opportunity to go back to the team and there was also you know quite a lot of work on trying to find another team maybe in Britain or America or something like that for a year 
Um, I started deep down, knew that you know it, it was time to call it a day. It was time to leave Never Never Land and go back to the real world. And it's actually, coincidentally, just the sort of night that I decided, right, you know, let's quit this search for another team. Let's just get on with the transition back into the real world. Uh, myself and couple of friends went out for a few drinks just to sort of I suppose celebrate or whatever and that very night I ended up meeting Rachel who a few years later ended up marrying and uh, we now have now have a kid and all so um I, I didn't uh didn't didn't really die too much I ended up <laughs> transitioning quite quite quickly and uh you know it's you know it was straight into the end trying to get a job and just uh, uh real real life took over and never had too much time left to to think back or to have any regrets or anything like that, which I, which I don't anyway. So, um, but I, in all that time, I've sort of, I still love my bike, still love training, still love racing. So I've kept all that up and there's no, no sign of me stopping anytime soon. Ronan, in terms of your training now, like what, what are you doing now? So you do have the Donegal Ultra. This show will be out before that race uh, takes place at the end of this month of August. But you were on Memoir Gap uh, yesterday. You are doing a bit of training at the moment. Um, I believe you are trying to go for the course record at the Donegal Ultra. Uh, same thing again. I'm just trying to go around as fast as I can. The uh, thing about all these crazy endurance cycling events and the Everest and, and all is that the longer you're out there the more it tends to hurt so uh, I would rather hurt more for a shorter time and try and get back quicker so hope, hopefully that'll work out alright but yeah yesterday we had another good spin happened to get out with a couple of other lads who are, who are racing the 555 as well so we, you know we went out in a bit of a recce of of some of the roads from the 555 and um yeah it was nice to get out on them we happened to end up going up a more gap again although from the opposite side this time so it was a nice uh it was a bit of a, a change of scenery i suppose <laughs> uh, not the opposite side of it compared to what i'd done 140 odd times over the last three weeks so um but yeah like the hey obviously you know uh, I, I broke the world record for everest in the forum is good uh, the condition is good. The whole everything thing has sort of given me a, well, first of all, it gave me a reason to train and keep focused during lockdown. And now it's given me sort of a, I suppose, a, a new lease of life or whatever you might want to call it. You know, just although I was always motivated for the 555, having done those two mammoth days in the bike, they're obviously going to stand to me as well in terms of form. And, you know, I just, I feel good in, in general. So, it's only three weeks away now to the Donegal Ultra and uh, we'll keep the head down for that time and, and, and see how it goes. And, and the thing as well, Ronan, is do you know those roads most likely like the back of your hand really aside from Memoir Gap but in general, you know, doing a race of the distance of 555k in your own backyard has got to be a bonus. Yeah, certainly. Like the, the record is, with any record, it's very much weather dependent. Like if it turns out to be a dreadful day or, you know, very strong headwinds or whatever it'll probably put it out of sight but definitely knowing the roads uh, is, a, is a huge advantage Um certainly the first half of the 555 I could almost you know ride it blindfolded I know I know the roads that well at this stage the, the second half I wouldn't be so familiar with or probably the third quarter I wouldn't be so familiar with but definitely the first half and the last quarter There'll, there'll, there'll be no surprises there for me like so it'll it'll just be about trying to again doing doing what i enjoy most about these things is 
it's sort of problem solving now for the next few weeks, working out the, the, the race plan, working out the tactic, trying to optimize the bike, optimize the pacing, all, all those parts of, of what I did for the Everson, although they'll be very different for the 555. That's sort of what I enjoy most about, about bike racing is all that sort of analytical work, I suppose, before and after, or, you know, planning work before and analytical work afterwards. And I, I really enjoy, really enjoy that. And, you know, it's it's an it's another it'll it'll keep me occupied for the next few weeks in in terms of of all that preparation work and then uh, hopefully it doesn't keep me occupied for too long on the day and and it all goes well and we we get back in a record time then that would be uh, that that would be the icing on the cake but you know the 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 first goal at hand is is to get home and then you know the second the second target is obviously to try and get home first and if both of those things go well then. We'll be on with the chance of getting the record, I suppose. And that meticulous planning, Ronan, is crucial to success in an endurance event like that, whether it's the Everesting Challenge or the likes of the Donegal Ultra 555, because you don't want to think when you're on your bike. All you want to do is, is cycle. So having all those crucial bits and pieces in place before you go gives yourself the best shot of completing it in the fastest possible time, regardless of the weather and the record and all of that, because you nearly have the race done without the actual pedaling before you get to the start line when you have your logistics in place and your meticulous planning, because making a wrong decision on the road can be detrimental to not only yourself, your crew, and also to your overall race performance. Exactly. And, you know, the old saying goes, fail to plan, plan to fail. Um, so I'm trying to, eliminate as as much as possible a chance for something to go wrong undoubtedly something will still go wrong um but it's just you know minimizing the chance of of what goes wrong being something serious and 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 giving myself the best chance possible to try and to try and get through it in the in the best shape possible for people maybe who are listening ronan um who would love to step up i mean we spoke to joe barr about this uh, in the last episode but who'd love to step up and maybe take on the likes of a challenge of the 555 kilometer race in donegal or the race around ireland as either a solo or a team you know what other than the, the meticulous planning and, and the training you know what sort of advice would you give to somebody who may be listening in, who might be a, somebody who even wants to just step up from doing a, a 60k sportif to 140k or maybe go further? The first thing I, I would I would genuinely say is, you know, sort of scratch everything that I've just said. Genuinely, what I was talking about there was, you know, trying to do the best that I can. I've, I've done the 555 twice before and I've been lucky enough to win it twice before and you know, for me, the goal is to see how fast can I do it. It's not the goal is not to finish it. I've, I've done that twice before, so that that's why that's why all that meticulous planning and all in terms of the pacing and trying to optimize everything. That's where that comes from. You know, if if someone is setting themselves the challenge of whether it be to ride their first hundred kilometers or whether it be to ride the five five five. Um, you know the 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 one thing I would say is start off just by putting your name on you know register for the event or uh, write it down in your diary when you're going to do this first hundred k because committing to something is is often the the biggest the hardest step to take but also the most important and um, on on both occasions of the Everest thing I sort of hemmed and had and yes i'm gonna do it no i'm not gonna do it you know i was on off on off and 
um, even right up until it, standing on Memorial Gap for the second Everesting, and it was still pouring rain. But you know, I sort of said, well, you know, there's only there's only one thing we can do here. We're standing on the climb. It is raining, but the forecast is it will dry up, and when it dries up, it's going to be a great day for Everesting. Put my front wheel on the start line and start the challenge. And you know, whatever comes after that comes after it, and you'll you'll deal with it. But if if you don't register and you don't sign up and you don't commit to it and you don't then put your front wheel on the start line you're you're never going to get to that point of having completed it and that that is the most daunting part of it is just that because you've you know when when you're on the bike doing any event you're going through the motions of completing the event so you don't really have that much time to think too much about it but for that time period before you actually get to the day of the event You've got so much time to think about it. You've got so much time to convince yourself that I can't do this or this is too hard or this can't be done or whatever it is. But, you know, really, uh, as I said to you in the first show that we did, uh, and I sort of took this philosophy or whatever you want to call it into the second Everesting was that if anybody on their day, if they dedicate themselves and, you know, prepare themselves and, and train for something, anybody can be world class on their day. And I wholeheartedly believe that, and 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 that that's what it's all about. It's just put your name on the start sheet, start list, or whatever it might be. Put it on your diary when you're going to do this first hundred kilometers, or the first time you're going to do 160 kilometers. Do your training in advance of that. I wouldn't get too bogged down in the specifics of of training. Whatever. Yes, yes, specific training can help, but for the vast majority of people, it's about trying to get yourself increase your fitness in whatever way you can. If, if you want to do your first 160 kilometer ride and you reckon it's going to take eight, nine, ten hours, that doesn't mean you need to ride for eight, nine, ten hours, you know, countless times in advance of it. The the adrenaline and the excitement of the day will get you through the, the, the most of it. All you need to try and do is get yourself as fit as possible, as prepared as possible uh, in advance and then put, as I said before, put your front wheel on the start line and, and away you go. And people, people are incredible the things that we can achieve is just uh you know everybody we talk to can can give us some reason why we can't do something but for a lot of people they'll find that when they put their mind that they can they can do just about anything they want and ronan you mentioned earlier um when you were talking about your own career kind of 2012 2013 you were talking about you know overcooking it a bit towards the end there where you felt you were going backwards for domestic riders mm-hmm. and for the average amateur rider we are our athlete triathlete whatever it is that we do and endure in sport we do actually have a habit of maybe overtraining and not listening to our bodies with regards to the training we want to get that extra session in we want to do that ftp test we want to you know get the session done um even though we mightn't be up for it how do we mitigate against that sense of needing to do the training but not overtrain? and obviously as a coach yourself i mean you have panache coaching and you're coaching imogen cotter and a few other um athletes that are doing very very well um both domestically well i suppose imogen's in belgium but you have domestic riders as well doing very well you know how, how do we pull back from that that kind of is it a want that we want to train but then we know we shouldn't because we're overtraining? that's a very long-winded question but i hope you know <laughs> Well, considering some of the long-winded answers I've given you so far, you were well entitled to the long-winded <laughs> question at this stage. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of the most valuable aspects of, of having a coach. And, you know, the vast majority of people, everybody now, you can, you know, you can find online or you can find books or whatever that will tell us 
this that, and the other about training and we can all research and study and come up with training plans uh that look great on paper and um, but the real the real uh, value in having a coach is you know first of all having someone to be accountable to so a lot of people find value in having having a coach planning their training and analyzing their training after it's done and for the athlete knowing that this coach is going to be looking at what I've done and you know if they're struggling with motivation sometimes that helps them uh, stick to a plan knowing that somebody else is going to be checking has it been done or not and has it been done on on, on has it been done correctly or near enough correctly but then the other great value in having a coach is just having someone who can say you know what we've done enough this week you're feeling tired you, you don't need to go out push the boat out too much or burn the candle at both ends missing a one day of training is not going to do any harm or ju- you know just having someone to to bounce that question off of, uh, you know, do I need to train today? I don't feel up to it. Um, and and a good coach should be able to answer that with, uh, well, you've done a very hard week of training. You've also had a stressful week in work from what you're telling me. The Bobby had you up all last night or whatever it is. It sounds like skipping today is probably the best thing for you. But as is natural for most athletes, uh, we tend to be very determined and resilient people who, uh, we sort of forget that we've already done three hard sessions this week and that we were awake all last night and that we are under extreme pressure and working. The only thing we can focus on is the fact that we're about to miss a training session or we can't hit a target in an interval and we just need a coach to turn around and say, well, here, look, this is not the day to be doing this session. Yes, it was part of the plan, but plans are are, are always subject to change. And the way this week has worked out means that you'd be far better off taking a rest day today. So um, I think that's one of the, the best aspects of, of the coaching that I provide is that I'm sort of there on hand. You know, a, a lot of the athletes that I coach could almost work out the, the training plan for themselves. Um, but what I'm doing is sort of, yes, I still write their training plans. They no doubt could do it themselves. But what I'm doing is writing a plan and then they can come back to me and ask questions or uh, offer a change here or a change there that they think. Might, uh, it's very much a two-way conversation rather than just a, here, go and do this sort of way of working. And do you have a coach yourself, Ronan, or do you coach yourself? Uh, I I did have a coach myself. I do believe that having a coach, even you know, even for someone who is a coach, I, I think having a coach is much better than being self-coached. And um, what I find tends to happen for myself personally, anyway, is although I can write a training plan for an athlete to prepare towards an event that they're working towards, when it comes to myself, what I end up doing is just justifying doing the sessions that I enjoy every day rather than. <laughs> what's right uh, it also means that I don't have the chance to you know bounce uh, questions off someone or you know ask them am, am I being hard on myself or am I being soft for hard on myself for trying to do a session that I clearly I'm not going to be able to do or soft for not you know uh, if it's if it's the opposite side of that that you know I'm, I'm just looking at the one that when it's raining and that's put me off and and you know that that's not a reason to, to to skip training really you know there's turbo trainers and there's rain jackets there's all sorts of options i i did have a coach but just with the way life was going for me everything got very very busy there last year we had um you know we had our, our daughter here who 
um, was just, you know, she's still a toddler, but she was very, very young last year. And it just, it wasn't really, what was ended up happening was days where I thought I had an hour to train. I ended up having no time to train and days where I thought I had no time to train. Sometimes I was finding time to train. So what I ended up doing was I just felt that I couldn't commit to having a coach and, and sort of move to self-coaching. But if, if things settle down again, the first thing I'll be doing is definitely getting myself a coach again. And in the meantime, I sort of have Timmy Barry and Frankie Campbell and a few other people who uh, sort of run our team that I can bounce ideas off and, and talk to and just work things out through discussion. Uh, although they're not writing training plans for me, they're not coaching me or anything. It's not like I'm... I'm on my own either. I've got, I've got, I've got uh, people to bounce ideas off and uh, have conversations with. That definitely helps. Brings me really to the next question. You've kind of half answered it, but in terms of balancing that busy household as well, because you wear so many different hats within the cycling world. You're a cyclist. You're a coach. You also sit on the board of Cycling Ireland. You are uh, working with a a charity that encourages children to be more active on their bikes. And then you're also involved with uh, Pactimo. So where do you find, uh, and probably 10 other hats as well that we probably don't even know about, but how do you find the time then to train? Do you work it into your daily schedule in that I have an hour here, I can get a hard session done for 45 minutes? Or, you know, is it a case of you get up at an ungodly hour in the morning or you train when the baby has gone to bed? Or how do you work it? I'm, I'm not a big fan of sleeping. So uh, it gives me a few extra hours in the day that most people don't have. Here, when you list them all out like that, it sounds, you know, it sounds ridiculous. You know, I, I do have my full-time job with Sustrans and that's nine to five. That's what I do during day but sort of luckily what that job allows me to do because it is promoting active travel walking cycling or scooting when we're in a normal year and we don't have a global pandemic and i'm going to schools five days a week and what that allows me to do is commute by bike so by commuting by bike to to the schools and get my training done on on the way out and the way back to back home again Uh, and then you know yes i'm on the board of cycling ireland tends to be a board meeting once a month and they're all done virtually now anyway and uh, any other meetings outside of that in previous years would have been virtually or on the phone or whatever as well in, in the evenings uh, and then my coaching work is just something that I really really enjoy and it's more of a hobby than, than anything else so combine that with the fact that I'm very lucky to have spent the last 15 years riding my bike God knows how many of those years I did 20, 25,000 kilometres a year so I've got an, an aerobic engine built up that is you know so long as i keep taking over it's not going to disappear overnight so I, I, I probably can get away with doing less training than most people which then frees up a bit of time to do these other things that i do enjoy doing aside from the donegal ultra what's the next crazy challenge are you going to keep <laughs> that in the vault for the moment I, I, I did a i did a podcast a few or a youtube thing a few days ago and i, I think i got talked into committing myself to another everything on it i'm afraid to watch it back in case that is what happened that's certainly the 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 memory i have of it is that there was some sort of deal done that i would do another everything the, the nationals are penciled in now for for october time which i would quite like to sort of turn my focus towards a better road racing before the end of the year so long as um obviously public health and uh, the pandemic and everything is is the most important thing in this year and so long as uh, racing does go as far as October and the nationals happen, then I would I would work towards that. But uh, I have a few other sort of uh, obscure 
events that I would like to try, but they're they're all very much subject to finding a sponsor or you know they're not the Everston isn't isn't uh, too bad because it's just up and down a single hill. But some of the other stuff I'm thinking about and the likes of the five 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 and stuff like that, they work out to be quite costly days on the bike <laughs> in terms of you know getting the bike ready, getting all the nutrition and stuff that you need for the day, getting uh, bits and pieces of spares and stuff, and then putting you know a car or two on the road to support you for the whole event. They're they're not cheap to do, but I certainly have a few other targets that have that are on sort of the so-called cycling bucket list. That uh, if I if I won the lotto tomorrow, I would uh, I would be lining up to do on on well, if I won the lotto on Tuesday, I'd be lining up to do them on Wednesday. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be gone. <laughs> I would come back again, you know, but I would be gone for a while. Anyway. As long as it's a green list country, you'll be all right. Yeah, most, it's useless <laughs> them. when you wear like us in Ireland, where else would you want to go? Well, this is it. Um, Ronan, if somebody had said to you back when you had gotten that first racer uh, from your dad that summer and said that you would have had such a prolific career, do you think would you have said they were dreaming and joking? And, and considering how much time you spend on your bike, with your bike and within the cycling community? Uh, I think if they had told me how much time I spend on my bike, with my bike and in the cycling community, I might have said, you know what, maybe I better just leave this thing here now before I get, before I get started. So if I thought they were right, it might have been just best to walk away there and then. And as a youngster, what did you want to be when you grew up other than a professional cyclist or was it a professional cyclist is what you wanted? I think uh, like I went through all those things as, as you do when you're you know very young, fireman, army, want to be my daddy, want to be uh, <laughs> all, all these, you know, everything at a young age. That, um, but I think sport took over before I really got to the age where I was sort of thinking career-wise. Um, but what that meant was, that, you know, I tried soccer, I tried uh, football, I tried uh, hurling, I tried cross country running, tried basketball, uh, tried all sorts of athletics. Pretty much, if it was a sport and it was a chance to get out of school for even thirty seconds, uh, my name was on every list going. And do you know anyway, what's quite then, ironic, Ronan, is now you're going into schools to encourage people to be more mobile on their bikes or their walking or their scooters. It's quite ironic that you're actually going back into school as part of your current career. Maybe it was a subconscious thing, but I was always, you know, wishing for somebody to come in and take us out of class. And maybe that's what I'm doing now. I'm coming in and taking the kids out there for the cycle. But yeah, like the, the work I do with Sostrans is just, it never feels like work anyway, put it that way. But um, back in back in the day when I was in school, it was just, you know, anything to do with sport. And, and then I was lucky enough to find cycling. And once I found cycling and realized I could be sort of good at it. And the thing I really liked about it was that it wasn't like, you know, football or basketball or something where you could put in all the hours in the day and it was sort of difficult to gain the skill that you might not have had um not you know I, i'm very reluctant to say things impossible but you know just some sports you can be naturally gifted for um but what i really liked about cycling was that the harder you work the the better it tended to work out for you but uh, you know i kept up i kept up all those sports until it was about 17 or 18 or so and i even remember there's actually quite a funny story about I, I was in school one day and I think I had played football during the day, uh, went to basketball after school, then got the bus from Bonquana to Derry to go to circuit training class for me cycling in Derry. 
uh, and then I was getting the bus, and this was like a winter's evening. We're getting the bus from Derry back to my home in Muff. Must have been about eight o'clock at this stage. I'd done three or four sports during the day, and my whole day in school. You know what ended up happening? What I was sitting down the back of the bus and fell asleep, and ended up waking up. I think it must have been about an hour later when the bus driver was actually just driving home in the pitch dark night in the middle of the countryside. <laughs> I was just exhausted from all the sport, uh, and I think I think that when I woke up, I realised that I had missed my stop and was walking up the bus to sort of tell the bus driver here you need to let me off. I think it. Uh, I think you need to put the bus over the hedge. You got that much of a fright. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was just. Uh, you know, and it's something that I sort of have have said ever since is that you know you you see especially nowadays kids getting very specialized and you know one particular sport at a very young age and I think that was one of the best things I ever did was sticking to all those different sports that give me such a sort of varied skill set what everybody sees about bike racing is pedaling your bike as fast as you can but there's just so much more to it than than that that you know I think that really stood to me and genuinely if I had the chance to go back now I would probably do everything I did exactly the same but I would pay much more attention and in, in, in actual school as well because uh the amount of time that i've spent since then going back and trying to learn the maths that i didn't learn then uh because i want to apply it to something about my training or something about preparation for a race and you know the algebra that i thought would have been useless when i was in secondary school turns out to be actually quite valuable and i'd actually paid some attention in spanish all the time spain spent in spain i could have maybe actually communicated with people rather than grunting at them I suppose so it, it's funny just looking back when we're young we think ah this, what's this what good is this going to do but actually it's incredibly valuable well Ronan I've taken up so much of your time I think there's some wise words to leave us with this evening and I think you've been very humble in what you've spoken about because you have had a fantastic career and you will undoubtedly continue to have a great career here at home I wish you the very very best of luck with Donegal Ultra I can't wait to see what the next obscure challenge to put in your own words is going to be and I hope I'm somewhere at a finish line soon to be able to call you across the line thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with everything thank you and thanks for having me on the the show again it's been a pleasure Thanks again for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Ronan. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. To hear more in-depth detail of Ronan's first Everesting attempt, pop over to the Try Talking Sport Facebook page and catch up on the live session on the videos tab. I'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Pop by and say hi and let me know what you think of the show. And if you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our guests. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe and thanks for tuning in. Hold up. 